Our passage this morning <coughs> is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. I'll ask you to turn there. I'm going to be reading the New King James Version. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. I'd like to take a moment to do a little self-examination, to have a spiritual checkup, if you will. Annually, I go to my doctor, and she checks my vitals and uh, maintains the medications that I'm on. The vital signs of life are important in the physical realm, but they're much, much more important in the spiritual realm. Are you alive in Christ? Have you been raised together with him and seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven? Are you spiritually awakened and alert to the things of God? In reflection, I thought perhaps I might revise the title of my sermon to Five Biblical Motivations for Prayer and Praise. Although worship includes praise. That's not the only thing we do in worship. Paul is writing to these Ephesians 
And in his rejoicing in the work that God has done in their lives, he brings them a prayer report, which we find at the end of chapter 1 and at the end of chapter 3. He prays essentially for two things, that they would be given revelation, that they might know God, that they might be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. And from that flow some things that we're not looking at today. In chapter 3 at the end, in his prayer report, he mentions his prayer for power, that they would be strengthened with might in the inner man, in the inner person, so that Christ would dwell in them, so that they might know this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge in all of its breadth and length and height and depth and be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, the sermon this morning is not focusing on Paul's prayer report and how we can, uh, how we can uh, framework our prayers, but it is relevant to our prayers and our praise. What are your motivations in coming to worship? Are you here because mom and dad brought you, children? Is that the only reason you're here, or do you want to be here? When I was a little boy, I remember before being born again, I suppose, I was in church and I thought it was rather boring. And so, because my parents wouldn't let me just go off and wander around the building any time I chose, I would fill my mind with imaginations to while away the time. It wasn't until I was born again that I began to see the wonder and beauty of God, this God that we worship. Jesus warned his disciples not to practice their piety before men, to be seen by them like the Pharisees. He said in a parable about the, the tax collector and the Pharisee who went up to the temple to worship, that the Pharisee prayed with himself. He was really congratulating himself for how great a man he was. I, I tithe regularly and I serve God faithfully. I'm not like this chief, this tax collector. But the tax collector in the back, so ashamed of his sins, beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said that tax collector went down to his house justified before God, not because of anything in him, but because of his contrition and surrender to God and trust in the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The Pharisee was trusting in his own achievements, in his own goodness, in his own merit. He wanted the applause of those around him. He was in church because he wanted to praise and magnify his own name, not God's. So I ask, what are your motivations for being here this morning? And how motivated are you to sing with joy, even shouts of joy, even, even praying and wrestling in silence during our time of prayer. Is worship on the Lord's Day, is prayer and praise just a discipline, a routine that you go through? Or do you have a deep, heartfelt sense that God has loved me, an undeserving, sinful wretch? God has loved me and sent his son to bear my sin and guilt in my place. He's the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. I want to look at five motivations, five biblical motivations for prayer and praise or worship and prayer, however you want to think of it. The first is found in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, Paul begins by praising God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As he expounds these things, he is carried away and bursts forth into praise. Often in his letters, especially in the book of Romans, he ends climactically in that famous conclusion, praising God in that doxology. The word here for blessed be God is the same as the phrase who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We praise God. The word in Greek gives us our word eulogy, to speak well. When we eulogize a person at a memorial service, we speak well of them and praise them for their life. We honor them in an appropriate and proper way. And as Christians, we honor them as we know that they are in Christ, that they've been made new and that they've served Christ faithfully by His grace. And it all comes back to blessing God, praising God. God is the object of our worship. God is the one to be blessed. We can't add anything to Him or His glory by praising Him, but as the old writers used to say, we ascribe worth to Him in our worship. The old English word for worship. We... Praise God. We extol His virtues. Recently I've been trying to to struggle through Jonathan Edwards' great treatise, The End for Which God Created the World. And he explores, uh, both philosophically and biblically, what this means. That if God has created all of this for His glory, God being who He is, is not an egomaniac. He, being God is perfect and righteous in all his attributes. We trust that God is good, that God is love, that God has created all of this to display his glory and majesty. One of the reasons Paul prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God is that Paul wants us to realize who God is, to know God, to behold His glory as Moses desired when he prayed for God to show him His glory, to empower him to lead the Israelites into the promised land. God tucked him away in that cleft of the rock and caused His goodness to pass before him. And Moses heard the proclamation of the gospel, the sovereign majesty of a holy God who will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. A God of compassion and yet a God of justice and righteousness. God being God is not um, in any way 
unrighteous in creating this world to display his glory. But as Jonathan Edwards brings out in that great treatise, God, who did not need to create us to be complete and happy and content, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect fellowship from all eternity, did not need to create us, but he chose to do so, and in doing so, he displays his glory in our redemption. Now, the thing I want you to remember, if you never get around to reading Jonathan Edwards' treatise, is that God delights in our delighting in him. God loves his people that are precious in his eyes. The people that he has claimed that we sang about. God has chosen us. And in doing so, in redeeming us, in creating the angels that worship him, he is displaying his grace and wonders for all to see. God delights in our delighting in Him. God wants you to come to church and delight in worshiping Him, in growing in your knowledge of God, learning more about Him and what He has done for you and me, about His love that is immeasurable, love that surpasses knowledge displayed in Christ for lost sinners. It's these blessings that God has showered upon us, we pray that God would reveal himself to us. In the last year, I've found a book by D.A. Carson called Praying with Paul. He examines all of Paul's prayers, and he concludes in chapter 3 with this exhortation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, at the heart of all our praying must be a biblical vision that vision embraces who God is, what he has done, who we are, where we are going, what we must value and cherish. That vision drives us toward increasing conformity with Jesus, toward lives lived in the light of eternity, toward hearty echoing of the church's ongoing cry, even so, come Lord Jesus. That vision must shape our prayers so that the things that most concern us in prayer are those that, are the con that concern the heart of God. Then we will persevere in our praying until we reach the goal God himself has set for us. This first motivation drives us to contemplate his blessings that he has showered upon us. As we sang in Psalm 65, his house is full of bounty. We feast together with him, and he is generous to share his riches with us. In Christ, we have become co-heirs with him. Christ has inherited the Father's kingdom, and he shares it with us. We're heirs together with Christ. This is our blessing Abraham and other patriarchs gave a, an oral blessing to their sons. He put his hands upon them. He prayed for them. When we pray for each other, we're blessing each other. We're invoking God's blessing upon us. But the thing I want you to see here 
is that we bless God, we praise Him because He's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we could list many blessings. Some would argue that these next four motivations that I've listed are in fact the spiritual blessings that Paul is focusing on. And I don't dispute that. I've just divided it up this way for the purposes of my sermon. But I hope you children have picked up a copy of this children's bulletin. I noticed it back on the lectern. Spiritual blessings in Christ. It says, in Christ we have forgiveness of sins. God gives us grace with all wisdom and understanding. And we have been chosen according to God's plan. And when we believe God's word of truth, we belong to him. That's a wonderful little summary of these spiritual blessings. Think about those things. Even children, our children, you children, can praise God for these good gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God is faithful and he wants to bless you with unimaginable blessings. Paul says at one point, all things are ours. We inherit the earth. I read recently that not very many people receive vast earthly fortunes by inheritance. Most of the world is poor. But as a child of God, you have all the riches of heaven. You are rich indeed. You have all the spiritual blessings that Paul speaks about, and you have the hope of glory, the fact that the meek shall inherit the earth. All things are ours. The new heavens and the new earth belong to us as God's children because we are in Christ. And we bless God for that. And this motivation for praise and for prayer is vital to our spiritual lives. We go on to consider his election as a motivation for prayer and praise. Verses 4 through 6. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Many years ago, at the beginning of my pastoral ministry, I listened to taped lectures, lectures by J.I. Packer on the book or the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And I remember being enthralled by his exposition. And he said this mystery of election and predestination is meant to comfort us and to give us assurance, not to fill us with fear that maybe we're not God's elect, maybe we've not been predestined, because the gospel is clear. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Christ will not turn away anyone who sincerely repents, turns from his sin, acknowledges his guilt, and comes to Christ. J.I. Packer 
said, there's an old illustration that I've used many times through the years that first struck me under the teaching of J.I. Packer. As we hear the gospel, we understand the invitation is sincere. All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We see that over the entrance to the kingdom of God. As we respond willingly, made alive in Christ, made new in Him, resurrected from the dead, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, not able to respond, but in the mystery of mysteries, we're alive. The Word of God has stirred our hearts and we have awakened to the reality that we're sinners and we need to be reconciled to God. And so we come to Christ. I don't know when I first believed, but I remember as my mother tucked me in at bed at night, at, at night as a child, she, she would read a Bible story and pray with me and kiss me goodnight. And my heart was strangely warmed and stirred by the Bible stories that she read. Later, when I was in my early teens, maybe 12 or 13 years old, my parents took me to see a, a Billy Graham movie. And I went forward after that film and met with a lady named Miss, Mrs. Converse. That's all I knew about her. She was the lovely school teacher type lady who was going to lead me through a Bible correspondence course. And for the next six weeks or so, I would fill out the Bible lesson and mail it to her and she would write comments on it and send it back to me. I remember as a child, or as an early teen, sitting at my parents' desk, filling out those Bible studies and eagerly awaiting her response to tell me more and more about this Savior, the Lord Jesus, that I've come to love and embrace. Well, J.I. Packer went on in that illustration to say, once we enter into the kingdom of God, we turn and look above the entrance is the phrase, elect in him from before the foundations of the world. God's purpose in revealing this difficult and, and mysterious doctrine of election and predestination is to comfort us and to give us assurance, but it's also designed to humble us. But it's not by works. Salvation's a gift of God. It's by grace not of works, lest any man should boast. Peter refers to our faith as a like, precious faith. Every true believer in Jesus Christ who has ever lived and who will ever live receives this gift of grace and faith. It's a precious gift from God. It's not because you were good enough. It's not because you earned it by being faithful in church attendance and praying daily your routine prayers it's not through vain repetition as Jesus says in, in teaching his disciples to pray it's through knowing God and understanding that he is sovereign that he's the potter that we're the clay that he in his sovereign majesty has elected us in Christ according to his purposes he is to be honored for the life that we live in Christ. In his classic, Knowing God, J.I. Packer speaks about how many Christians have a great deal of knowledge about God and very little experience in knowing God. 
They have a, have a great deal about, they know a great deal about godliness without much knowledge of God. Now, theology is important. Bible doctrine is essential. We need to know what the Bible teaches. We're sanctified by God's truth, this book, through the Holy Spirit enlightening our minds and, and building us up in faith. But this, this knowledge must be personal and experiential. That's why Paul prays that God might give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, that we would understand these wonderful mysteries of his purpose in our lives. Packer says, We have said that when a man knows God, losses and crosses cease to matter to him. What he has gained simply banishes these things from his mind. What other effects does knowledge of God have on man? Various sections of scripture answer this question from different points of view, but perhaps the most clear and striking answer of all is provided by the book of Daniel. And he speaks there in expounding that, that those who know God have great energy for God. The people who, that know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Those who know God have great thoughts of God. I pray often when I'm opening the scriptures, God, open my eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. Show me your glory as you showed Moses. And then, thirdly, Packer says, those who know God shall show great boldness for God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went boldly into that fiery furnace and were protected by the presence of Christ. He ends with this quotation, Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I die or live. To love and serve thee is my share, and this thy grace must give. If life be long, I will be glad that I may long obey. If short, then why should I be sad to soar to endless day? God has revealed his, his love for us in choosing us in Christ from before the foundations of the world. He has predestined us to adoption as sons. He has determined that everyone who comes to faith in Christ united to Christ, will be conformed to the likeness of Christ in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. His plan is to make you and me holy and Christ-like in every way. The fullness of God in Christ will be manifested in us. His plan and purpose is that we will grow up into the full stature of Christ, the full measure of maturity in Christ. He has determined it. And not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from our Heavenly Father's ordaining purpose, says Jesus. You and I are safe in the everlasting arms of our Heavenly Father, and we will persevere to the end, not because we're faithful, but because of our union with Christ, and because Christ is faithful, and because God has reconciled us together with him through Christ. And that brings us then to his redemption. Another motivation 
a biblical motivation for our prayer and praise. To think about the fact that we have been forgiven and reconciled with God implies the importance of understanding that we were born dead in our trespasses and sins. Lifeless like Lazarus in the grave. Stinking. Rotting in our sins. God has commanded the light to shine in our lives. He has made us alive together in Christ. We've been resurrected in Christ. Made alive together with Him to walk with with God in fellowship. But in order for this to happen, He had to send His Son as the Lamb of God without blemish to bear our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Listen to verses 7 through 10 again. And this is what thrilled Paul's heart as he thought of this. It moved him to praise and to prayer. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. We have redemption. God has bought us with a price, not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Jesus came into this world born of a virgin, and grew up in a household just like you and I as children. He came into this world, took human flesh, took upon himself the likeness of sinful human flesh, though without sin. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He never once talked back to his parents in a sinful way. He may have said things to them that seemed to us uh, a little bit brash, but... Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? I wasn't lost. I was in my father's house. But he never sinned against them. He never gave them the evil eye. He never shrugged his shoulders and complained and murmured under his breath about Mother Mother Mary and Father Joseph. He was a perfect example. And that's why his brothers didn't really like him all that well. Like Joseph, his brothers were jealous of him, I'm sure. His sisters, perhaps, too. But as Jesus grew up and obeyed the law and served in honor the Father, he earned our salvation for us. He rescued us from our death in sin. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And because of what happens when we believe on the Lord Jesus, God puts our sins to his account and his righteousness to our account. And we are reconciled to God and treated as his beloved son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased, the voice from heaven said of Jesus at his baptism and at the mountain of transfiguration. But think of it. In Christ, we're redeemed. We owe no more debt to God. We're debt free. And God looks upon us clothed in the righteousness of Christ and says, 
This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased because of Jesus. Not because you're good enough. Not because you've been faithful to come to church and tithe and pray every day. But because you're one with Jesus. And that brings us to the fourth motivation for prayer and praise, and that is his heritage. And I've chosen this this wording very carefully in verses 11 and 12. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel, counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him also we have obtained an inheritance is one way to translate the Greek word here. But the Greek word means I make a heritage. I believe that this is the same thing that Paul is saying in his prayer report at the end of the chapter when he says, I'm praying that God would give me the spirit of revelation and knowledge of, of God so that you might see and understand and appreciate the hope of your calling and the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints. God claims us as his people. We are his heritage. And that's a marvel beyond words. God looks at us and as a great commentator once wrote or said in an interview, J. Alec Mateer, God looks at us and his heart goes pitter-patter. He's in love with us because of Jesus. He's found a bride for his son. And because of the righteousness of Christ, he looks at us and is thrilled and delighted that we delight in him. Like a bride at the wedding looking her father in the eyes and leaving to cleave to her husband. We are the bride of Christ. We've been purchased by his blood, but we are his heritage. I want to prove this briefly by looking at Deuteronomy chapter 32, where God says in verses 7 through 9, Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you, when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. God says the nations get these lands, but Israel's mine. And that's a foreshadowing of we who are the Israel of God, Paul says in Galatians. We're the Israel of God. We're the people that he has chosen and claimed and who are precious in his eyes, as we sang in Psalm 149. There are other uh, references that I've, I've recorded in, uh, in my notes, if I can find them. This is from F.F. F. Bruce's commentary. The glorious wealth of his inheritance in the saints has been alluded to in verse 11. 
according to which believers have been claimed by God as his portion in Christ. And verse 14, where God will redeem his possession on the day of consummation, that God should set such high value on a community of sinners rescued from perdition and still bearing too many traces of their former state might well seem incredible were it not made clear that he sees them in Christ as from the beginning he chose them in Christ. There are other references that I won't read, but we'll look at this again in the final motivation, his seal. God intends to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God intends to sum up all things in Christ. The world's in a mess. If you listen to the news, it's depressing. The wars and rumors of wars, the famine, the injustice, the atrocities, the evil, vile wickedness is there, and yet God has a plan and a purpose, and he's patiently waiting to accomplish his purposes in the fullness of time. We are living in that fullness of time. Christ has come. We are in the last days in that biblical sense of the word. They may be many centuries yet, and yet God says, I will fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in the midst of our discouraging journey here on earth, heavenward, we need to know that we belong to God. We need to know with certainty and full assurance, and it can be ours. Our confession of faith speaks about assurance of salvation is not essential to salvation. You can live your life as a depressed Christian and enter into the glories of heaven without ever knowing in this life these riches and joys that Paul is describing here. You need full assurance of salvation. You need to pursue it by being in the Word of God. But the only way that you can really know it is by His seal. Now, there's been much written about the meaning of this, but I'll read these, ver- this, these words in verses 13 and 14 and comment in closing. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Paul here is speaking about the fact that his people hear the gospel. The gospel is proclaimed. That's how we come to faith in Christ. We hear the gospel, the good news. Sometimes it's just a fragment of scripture that you memorized as a child that God uses to cause that incorruptible seed to sprout in your life and begin to bear fruit. I read, I mean, I heard a testimony of a Gideon who said that in tossing or in handing out Gideon Bibles, one of the recipients just threw it up on the roof. Didn't have any use for it. But the man that was working on the roof picked it up and read it and came to faith in Christ. 
It's by the incorruptible seed, the Word of God, that we're born again and we believe in Christ. But Paul says here, you then were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And this is where the controversy begins. Our brothers and sisters in Christ who emphasize the charismatic gifts and have worship services that are much more lively than Reform services are ordinarily would emphasize what they call the second blessing. They would emphasize seeking the Holy Spirit for this second blessing. I remember in my second pastor as a young pastor listening to a fellow preacher from a different tradition speak about this and it, it made me wonder, am I missing something? And I grant that uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ interpret Scripture differently than we do in the Reformed family, or let's just say the Reformed branch of the family of God. But why is it that often our children grow up and leave our churches because they feel that our worship isn't alive and dynamic? Why is it that... uh, We sometimes get depressed and discouraged as we come to worship God. A big part of it is that this life is a a life filled with woes and tears. And in this valley of tears, we weep. But I came in my early years of ministry, even while I was in seminary, to read D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great Reformed preacher in England who preached... uh, during my childhood years and was still preaching as I graduated from seminary and passed away suddenly, uh, not suddenly, but uh, in those years. In a series of sermons on John, there um, have been a a selection published in a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones, a book of sermons called Joy Unspeakable, Power and Renewal in the Holy Spirit. And he describes the meaning of Biblical baptism with the Spirit. Baptism is a concept that we need to understand. Baptism is something that that transforms and changes. It alters a character or status of a person. When I baptize someone with water, their status is changed. They have been officially welcomed into or introduced into the family of God in a formal way. But Jesus said of John the Baptist, he baptizes with water, but but, uh, John John the Baptist said of Jesus that one coming after me would baptize with the Spirit and with fire. Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. He makes us bold. He seals our hearts with assurance. He moves and works in us as we meditate upon Scripture, as the Word of God is preached with boldness and clarity. As Paul said, I... I seek to preach not in in human eloquence, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power. Paul says we speak as it were the oracles of God. Look at the difference between Peter before and after Pentecost when he was cowardly and denied his Savior after the Spirit fell upon them and they were baptized with the Spirit. They were given boldness and courage and they suffered for the sake of Christ. Peter became a bold lion for the cause of Christ because of the seal of the Holy Spirit in his life. 
I'm not going to delve into the controversy any further just to say that I believe Paul here is saying that one of our motivations for prayer and praise is that the Holy Spirit is is at work in our lives, empowering us, enlightening our minds. After all, Paul prays that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would be given to them. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to pray for the fullness of the Spirit as we come to worship. We need to pray that God would give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God as we meet on Lord's Days to worship, to pray, pray and praise, uh, for prayer and praise. We need that gift of sealing. In ancient days, a king would have a signet ring and with melted wax on a document, he would press that ring to prove the authenticity of that document. When the Holy Spirit melts your heart, he takes the signet ring of God according to Haggai or Haggai, Jesus himself, and impresses his character upon you. And you find that the more you fellowship with Christ and experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you are conformed more and more into the likeness of Christ in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So however you understand what Paul is saying here, the bottom line is that God has promised to give us the Holy Spirit as a sign that we belong to Him. When you hear preaching that comes with a quiet conviction of sin in your heart, when your heart is melted, that's God saying, you belong to me. You're my possession, and I'm coming back for you. It's a down payment, as Paul says here. It's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. God wants you to have fullness of assurance. God wants you to have great joy and delight in him. He looks upon you and delights in your delighting in him. Are you in love with Jesus? Are you looking forward to the great marriage feast of the Lamb? Do you love God? Do you know Jesus? This love that he had for us that's beyond knowledge, this love that if you think about it, it will just melt your heart. I remember as a, as a, a great school boy, a friend was so kind to me. I was a Protestant. He was a Catholic. I thought, I'm saved. He's not. But he was so kind to me, like an older brother. He helped me out of a few scrapes in grade school. And I remember years later as a, as a maturing Christian just weeping and weeping because my heart had been melted by his love that reflected Christ in my life. May God melt your heart as you think about what Jesus has done for you and is doing and will finish on the last great day.